welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is independent and ad-free because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter by going to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello, everyone. Before we begin the episode today, we have a few orders of business. Uh, First, we are rapidly approaching episode 200. Just like episode 100, that's going to be a Q&A show, and the Q's come from you. So, over at weirdhistorypodcast.com, there is a contact form. You can click it. You can contact me and send questions. You could send questions to me via social media, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast, or go on Twitter. I am at Joe Streckert. You can ask about the podcast, past episodes, uh, what it's like to have a podcast. You can ask questions about me, whatever, um, and I will answer those on episode 200. So get on that. Also, you're probably wondering where the next Iran-Contra show is. Uh, that's coming, but today's show was really fascinating. And like it was in a book I really got absorbed in, and I just wanted to get it out there as soon as possible. Uh, I talked to an author named Joshua Specht. He teaches American history at Monash University in Australia, and he's written a book called Red Meat Republic. It's a book that belongs to, at this point, a pretty well-defined subgenre of history books, uh, and that's commodity histories, like Sven Beckert's Empire of Cotton or Mark Kurlansky's Salt, also Kurlansky's follow-up, Cod. And it tells the story of a single thing that people use fairly often, like cotton or salt or cod, or in this case, beef. Uh, Beef is maybe one of the most important food items or commodities in the United States. It's something that's very much bound up with American identity. Not just consuming beef, but, you know, being out there and ranching and raising cattle and driving cattle and... You know, with beef, you get a lot of, you know, cowboy mythology and and like working class Chicago mythology and all sorts of stuff about what it means to, you know, be a rich, successful person who's eating a good cut of steak, all of that. So it's not like other food items. We don't think of beef in the same way we think of chicken or pork or fish or any of that. And Specht got into how the story of beef is very much the story of expansion in the United States because the U.S. needed to take land from a lot of Native Americans in order to have ranch land, and also the story of industrialization and of labor and of class. It was a, pun intended, very, very meaty book, and I highly recommend it. Uh, If you like the kind of thing where an author zeroes in on one thing and tells a big story by following the importance of just like a single item through this vast chain of production and processing and consumption, and I do like those things, pick up Red Meat Republic. It was fascinating, and the conversation you're about to listen to is just a taste of what Spetched gets into in the book. So here you go, Joshua Specht on Red Meat Republic. Josh Specht, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Yeah, so your book, Red Meat Republic, um, how would you briefly sum it up? Uh, what's your project here? Well, I, I really want to tell a history of basically how all Americans, rich and poor, came to expect high-quality fresh beef with the majority of their meals. So basically the trans 
transformation of beef from delicacy to daily fare. And that all really happened in the late 19th century, between about 1865 and 1920. You spend uh, a good deal of, an early, of the early part of the book on the amount of space in the United States that's taken up by uh, ranching and cattle raising. Uh, and that is a fascinating section of the book. Uh, how did that come about? How did we give over so much of the U.S.'s land area to cattle? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. I think to to, to briefly back up something I should have gotten into a minute before, a minute ago is that right? How did we get this delicacy to daily fare transformation? And on one level, it's it's a story of technology, it's a story of railroads connecting distant places in America and refrigeration keeping things fresh. But as I started to research it, I thought, well, sure, railroads are important, but the land they're traveling over, where did that come from? You know, what was the kind of human scale fight this precipitated? And then I realized you can't really tell the story of beef in America without thinking about the American West and and this abundance of land that was taken from American Indians. This wasn't land that was kind of empty waiting for a productive use. Cattle ranching needed space and it was is on land taken from other people. So you spend a lot of time in the book about the beef versus bison distinction. Mm -hmm. um, how would you characterize that shift? What happened there? So what I like to think is I liked for the reader to think about the parallels between the period that preceded ranching and then the ranching period. So before cattle ranching had kind of taken over the plains, you had American Indian peoples on horseback living a kind of semi-nomadic existence off the hunt of the bison, a large grazing animal that was indigenous to, to North America. And in the, the aftermath of ranching, you have cowboys or ranchers on horseback farming and living a kind of mobile existence farming these cattle. And so there's, there's a parallel there, I think, and both are living off grass, stored energy from the sun. But for 19th century Americans, these are completely different, right? The, the bison are, are kind of wild animals. You have stories. I talk about settlers who think they're kind of disgusting or they're monstrous. And you have people, this semi-nomadic existence is seen as kind of primitive, as opposed to ranching, which kind of, when you spread ranching to a space, in the idea of these people, it's putting it on the road to progress and civilization. So you get accounts in the late 19th century of people talking about the West as a barren waste that through ranching has been converted to a scene of enterprise and thrift. Yeah, and these ranching organizations, uh, for a brief period of time, are... Absolutely enormous. How did these gigantic corporate ranches come about? Yeah, I think this is one of the strangest pieces of the story. You know, when I started writing about this, I thought I was going to kind of tackle some of these myths about what the West was like, that it was kind of indiv individuals kind of out there on their own. But what surprised me really is when I looked at ranching, it wasn't just that the state was there, it was that it was really big business. So in the aftermath of the American Civil War, there was kind of a bloody process of, of, of seizing control of places like the Texas Panhandle. And once that process of kind of displacing bison, as well as seizing American Indian land had taken place, all of a sudden investment capital started pouring into the region from places like the Northeast of the United States and as far away as Scotland. And there were people who thought we could turn this ranching thing into really big business, and they assembled herds of 100,000 animals or more. Yeah, something I thought was really fascinating is that I think there's this tendency to think of, you know, ranching or any kind of settlement in the American West as something that's kind of, you know, growing out of that area or that's kind of bottom up or grassroots. Yet you take yeah. a picture of East Coast and European money really investing in these kind of 
land seizing and land development projects in what we think of as this kind of pre-modern rugged area. So it did seem kind of myth-busty in that sense. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Especially when you talk about um, cowboys, because we can't talk about cattle without cowboys. Like, this might sound like a weird question, but what is a cowboy? Um, well, you know, maybe you tell me. I don't. I don't have the the answer figured out. It was something. It's something that the more you think about it, the more complicated it gets. And here's why. So we all in our heads, or at least most Americans, have an idea of what the cowboy is that comes to us from movies. It might come from Western books. Um, it's a man, often in our imagination, a white man, kind of a rugged face, right? A hat, riding around on their own with some animals. Um, and I think that myth of the cowboy is important. I mean, first of all, it does ignore that there were many non-white cowboys. and and But also, I think it ignores that these people were often wage workers. I like to think of them also as cattle workers. So you had a distinction, especially during this period of corporate ranching, between the people who actually owned the cattle, who we might think of as ranchers, or cattlemen. And then we have cowboys. And these are the people who are the workers. And so one thing, one way I kind of complicate our view of the cowboys, I talk about an 1883 strike in which a bunch of cowboys working on panhandle ranches essentially refuse to work in protest for better conditions and better pay. But the thing that actually confused me even more about the cowboy is when I started reading the accounts of these kinds of workers and how they understood their job, all the myths of the cowboy weren't something we hold in 2019, it was actually some of these workers themselves bought into these myths. So I think there's kind of this blend of the romantic vision and this kind of cattle worker vision that I try to trace. Another uh, fascinating thing that you talk about that was very new to me was the role of cattle ranching and standardization across cattle towns, uh, which I thought was very interesting. So how did cattle towns compete with each other? And how did that kind of growth of cattle towns lead to a certain, I don't want to call it homogeneity, but a certain kind of sameness to them? No, I think I think you're exactly right about that. And I think that's a really interesting, that's one of my favorite aspects of the story, actually. It's a bit, it's a bit technical. Um, but if you think about it right, I want to tell a story of large-scale transformation. I want to talk about the acceleration of moving products. I want to talk about a national market. I do want to talk about standardization. I think that's the, the right word to use. But what I want to do is understand how that unfolds from a human story. I want to talk about that without losing track of the people. And so I want to look at how competition and negotiation works on the ground in various cattle towns and understand how that helped piece together a national market. And what I found interesting is every competing cattle town, whether you're the town of Abilene, Kansas, or you're the town of Ellsworth, Kansas, these are towns that connected kind of rural cattle ranching with the National Rail Network. The boosters of these towns were trying to appeal to ranchers from far away, and they were often competing with each other. And the way they would attract ranchers from far away is they would make it easier for them to come to your town. They would give you maps. They would offer facilities that kind of were familiar. But by every town competing for these ranchers, every town also started to look the same. And so once every town looked the same, no individual town really mattered anymore to the market. And so you get this weird process of people in individual towns competing with other towns end up everything looking the same. When I was reading that section, it kind of reminded me, tell me if this is a fair comparison or not, of cities jockeying for attention of, say, you know, Amazon or other big companies and trying to lure them with tax breaks and facilities and amenities and sweetheart deals and all that kind of thing. Do you think that is a fair comparison or am I just kind of projecting my modern, um, my modern perspective on that? 
No, I think, I mean, I think that's a great comparison. I can't tell if you're very perceptive or hopefully I've also done my job well. Um, I was, I was thinking about this as I, as I wrote that, um, because what we see today, right, is we see these towns that compete to appeal to businesses that could locate in any of them, right? Amazon, lots of towns are bidding for Amazon support and Amazon can play these towns off, these cities off each other. We see the exact same thing with these cattle towns. So the cattle towns are both appealing to ranchers, but the promoters for these towns are also appealing to railroads. They're saying, put your put your railroad to our town and we can offer you these amenities. Or they're bribing people. And all these different and the railroads are kind of choosing between these different towns in a way that all the towns kind of lose, but the railroads ultimately will win out whatever happens. And I see that today as well. Let's talk about railroads, because I think when a lot of folks who have maybe um learned a little bit about the history of cattle in the United States. Um, you know, imagine this issue. They think about uh, the wonder of the railroad and particularly the refrigerated railroad car. So what role did they play in bringing stuff to Chicago? Because we got to go to, we have to go to Chicago uh, eventually. And what kind of conflicts did the rail uh, the railroads have with the suppliers, with the ranchers? So I think with... So the railroads are, are are absolutely key to the story, um, and there's there's a funny bit to the story. So you were just asking about the conflict between railroads and ranchers. Well, if you talk about kind of, we got to think about two stages for the production of beef. There's the part where the animal's still alive, and there's the part where the beef is traveling around. And by kind of midway through my story, west of Chicago, you're dealing often with live animals headed towards Chicago or other stockyards, and east of Chicago, you're dealing with meat. And in the West, the railroads rule. The ranchers have no choice but to go with what the railroads want. They often, people in towns often feel victimized by the railroads as the railroads move from town to town. And so I can trace a conflict there and see how the railroads are kind of taking advantage of that. One way is by just expanding to different towns and, and taking over a market. But east of Chicago, there's an odd thing where the railroads at first try to oppose the Chicago meatpackers and not accept their beef. But eventually, the Chicago meatpackers get so powerful, in part because they end up developing their own railroad technology in the form of refrigerated rail cars, that the American railroads in the East have kind of created a monster. And they're forced to do the bidding of the Chicago meatpackers who control a massive trade. And so I, I think I see in different places the relative power of the railroads very differently. And I understand this kind of competition and this conflict very differently. And I think it makes for a pretty interesting story. You very much paint a picture of an industry with several different actors who all seem to kind of resent each other at any given time. Mm, yeah. Yeah. How did the how did the different players in the beef industry at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, how did they vie for power and how much of their actual resentment uh, to other actors was genuine and how much of it was maybe sort of imagined on their part? That was something I kept thinking. Yeah, I think that's a really important question. So one one key part of the story that I talk about is that these meatpacking firms, uh, primarily four of them headquartered in Chicago, the most famous of which are Armour and Company and Swift and Company, they kind of take over the whole food chain. They eventually get big enough that they can force ranchers to do their bidding, and they eventually get big enough that they can drive kind of traditional butchers bankrupt or force them to sign up with Chicago-dressed beef. And so as this process is unfolding, as they're kind of getting their stranglehold on both ranchers and butchers, both those groups start to protest. 
So butchers start to organize local boycotts of Chicago beef. They try to get state resolutions passed banning Chicago beef. And ranchers start to do the same or start to protest in Washington. And so there's this big conflict they try to organize politically. What the the meatpackers do that's very clever is they basically say, we're on the side of the public. We're lowering prices. And so you have to accept this protest. You have to basically accept the way we do business, which might drive butchers bankrupt and might make ranchers struggle, but we're lowering prices. And what happens by the end of that story, the meatpackers are successful. And these butchers who resent them, most of them go out of business or have to sign up with Chicago. Ranchers are also forced into this position of dependency that lasts from 1900 to the present, where they're extremely critical of of meatpackers. They feel like they're being fleeced. And and just recently, cattle ranchers came together and said they felt like they were being cheated by meat processors today. And back then it was the same, but they didn't have any other choice, right? That was their market. And so they're both dependent on meat processors, but also resentful of them. And I think that's important to the story. So labor is a huge part of that. And uh, another thing that you talk about is how taking an animal apart was also a process that was well, taken apart and divided up into bits. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have I have seen on a number of different occasions um, a skilled expert butcher uh, take apart an animal, and it's kind of a fascinating process to watch. How you see something it is. like yeah, a quarter of an animal turn into the familiar cuts of beef, beef that you see at the grocery store. Um, yeah, and yet and yet that process of skilled labor was kind of broken down into something where everybody was just doing one or the other thing. Um, And it seems like this was the assembly line before the assembly line. Uh, Do you think that's an accurate assessment? Yeah, I think this is this is the origin of the assembly line. And it is the disassembly line of the slaughterhouse. Uh, Early disassembly lines are pioneered in Cincinnati in pork packing, but Chicago and the Chicago meat packing firms really perfect it. And to give you a sense of how important this is, in his memoirs, Henry Ford talks about seeing a side of a piece of Chicago dressed beef being produced going down the disassembly line is inspiring his idea for the assembly line. And I think what's key to this, so the disassembly line is, is central to the profits of these Chicago meatpacking firms. And I think the word you use, skilled, is absolutely key to understanding this. Right? The thing about a skilled butcher is they can be they can be quite quick. But A, they're hard to train new ones. So if you need a lot of them, it's hard to get them quickly. And they're fast, but they're not going to be as fast as a bunch of people working together on specialized tasks. So if each person does a little piece of of that overall process, you can train those people quickly, and you can also replace them easily. And if you have those two factors, you can actually force people to work much harder, right? So if, if imagine 10 of us are all working together on an assembly line. We have to work together. What happens if you go faster than me? Well, I have to catch up. And so the meatpackers would pick one person and pay them a little bit more, and they would set the pace for everyone. They would also concentrate a few of the most skilled jobs and pay those people slightly more, but pay everybody much less. And so I trace kind of the efficiency of this disassembly line, but argue it's not just some magical way of increasing efficiency. It's also in in part about exploiting workers. Yeah, yeah, because it goes from, you know, the type of the type of skill and craft that somebody would spend their life perfecting to the yeah. type of thing where you can just insert almost anyone into one part of the process and they just do that thing again and again. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's, that's right. And you see that in my story, you know, they use child laborers, essentially. I tell the story of a 14 year old boy named Vincenzo Rodkowski who works in a slaughterhouse. He becomes quite skilled, but they work him so hard that he's overwhelmed by its pace. And he's gravely injured when he's hit by a side of beef that causes him to stab himself. And he spends the rest of his life trying to get compensation. But the point is that he started work as a 14 year old boy who could be trained relatively quickly and exploited. So I think a few listeners are probably wondering, uh, where's Upton Sinclair in this? Where's where's the jungle? And uh, I I remember reading the jungle in like I think it was in high school. I think it was a junior. Yeah, that sounds and, about right. Yeah, and there was way more in that book about labor history than I expected because its reputation is about you know how gross meatpacking plants were. But yeah, yeah, yeah. How did how did you approach Upton Sinclair's novel and how did you engage with it when you were uh, writing this? So I think I had a similar experience to you. I had kind of vaguely remembered reading it or maybe parts of it in school. And then as I was writing the uh, writing this project, I thought, okay, well I should I should read The Jungle for inspiration and I was surprised. You know, it was it really is is a text intended to kind of foment revolution. I mean, the story ends with the protagonist, Jurgis, listening to an organizer talking about the workers taking Chicago, that Chicago will be ours. And of course, when you know the, the story of the reception of the jungle, it was all about sanitation. Now, admittedly, the parts of the book that do talk about contamination of food, that talk about wastewater getting into people's meat, that talk about rats falling into vats for meat, talking about rat feces getting into meat, that's it, it gets you in the gut. And so... I think people were uncomfortable with the revolutionary message of the book, but they they latched onto the sanitation immediately. And that, that's why Sinclair said that he aimed for the heart, but hit people in the stomach. We also haven't talked about uh, beef itself as a product yet and how people consume it and think about it and uh, what beef means, you know, in kind of American public life. And yeah. you talk about how beef more than a lot of other food products is you know, bound up with status and masculinity. So in what ways is it bound up with status and masculinity? I think, I mean, it's it's a great question. I would say that beef, for many people, if you imagine who is moving to the United States in the late 19th century, and you think about the people who are coming from Europe, most of them come from societies where beef is very important, but it's a special occasion food. And so with beef becoming cheaper due to industrial production, due to the power of Chicago meatpackers, when they get there, this food that was a special occasion food becomes an all-the-time food. And even more than that, beef becomes a, a kind of metric for them to show their success in America and their process of Americanization. All of a sudden for these people, these recent immigrants or their children, to be American is to be able to consume beef. And this means that they're not going to settle for anything else. And this also ensures that the Chicago meatpackers will always have a market, right? They, 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 they're they not just trying to convince people to eat beef. They just need to meet this kind of endless demand. And what you also see is you see elite Americans having anxiety about this. They're talking about how poor Americans in their minds are spending too much on beef. Or why won't they settle for the humble round steak? And why do they always want a porterhouse steak? And you also get the labor movement arguing that beef is really important. So I found this kind of fascinating pamphlet advocating for limiting, for Chinese exclusion, that is preventing Chinese immigration. 
and it argues that Chinese immigration would hurt the American worker. And so the pamphlet is called Meat vs. Rice, and it's a very racist pamphlet, but I think it gets at this. It basically argues that Chinese laborers can survive on rice, and if you bring people who can survive on rice to the United States, it's going to drag down the American worker who subsists on, on meat, and particularly beef. And so it talks about Chinese immigration, in their minds, as a threat to American manhood. And the kind of unexamined assumption that, well, there's a lot of unexamined assumptions, but there's always the idea that beef is the most important thing. And that's a very good situation to be in if you're the meatpackers trying to sell beef. You talk about how poorer people and uh, also minorities sometimes would go into butcher shops and ask for the pretty good cuts of beef. And there was, it seems to be some umbrage taking at that. Like again and again, you talk about how, you know, people who work for a living think that they are maybe entitled is a weird word to use, but yeah, uh, allowed to buy what should be rich people food and how that could, was something of a something of a bit of miniature like class upheaval i think entitled is is the is the perfect word for this i mean i in the in the book when i talk about the meanings of beef i i really see there's there really are axes of gender so so manhood is tied to beef there's axes of race as you suggest and there's axes of class people think that you should buy beef by station and i talk about this joke about how people should buy meat by rank and this assumption that you know who you are depends on the cut of meat you can get. And in a way, it makes sense, right? Before this period, richer Americans could, could afford beef all the time. Once everyone can afford beef all the time, well, how do you show your special? Well, you get fancier cuts of beef. And all of a sudden, you know, you get this idea that poorer people need to eat meat based on their station. And one way you can see the struggle over that is that at the same time I was telling you about these worker pamphlets, arguing that the American worker needs beef to kind of show American manhood, you get, and, and criticizing Chinese workers, you get kind of elites writing about studying the diets of non-meat-eating peoples. In their minds, Chinese people eating rice, but also Irish workers eating potatoes, and them kind of trying to argue that the worker should learn to survive on these things in order to build a healthier and uh, cheaper to reproduce workforce. Yeah, and you talk about how when people think about um, poor people's diets, they're thinking of it in terms of science and nutrition and the like. But when they're talking about rich people's diets, they're thinking about it in terms of cultural expression or aesthetics and about how that distinction still exists. I think this is really important today, you know, mm -hmm. and in that we still do this, right? We talk about diets of poorer Americans by we, I mean the public kind of, they obsess about obesity, they obsess about nutrition. And yet when, when people talk about their peers or elite Americans, right, it's all about the aesthetic experience. We talk about what's the best restaurant. You know, when we talk about a Michelin star restaurant, we're not thinking about the health, how many calories are in what we eat. But when we talk about a McDonald's hamburger, that's there. And I think that's reproducing these same kinds of hierarchies around food that started in the 19th century. Yeah. So in terms of uh, elite consumption of beef, something that I just have to touch on. Um, what is a beefsteak, as in an event? What would that have been yeah. like? Uh, I think it would have been chaotic and weird. So uh, a beefsteak party or beefsteak meal was these kinds of meals where young, upwardly mobile men got together and they would just eat vast quantities of, of beefsteak, so just like a steak or, or a cut of beef, 
and it would be very informal. So you'd, you'd be these rich kind of elite men, but you'd eat with your fingers. You'd be eating on just sitting on an overturned box, and you'd just eat as much beef as possible, wash down with as much beer as possible. And the joke was that dessert would be a lamb chop. And what I find interesting about this is it's a way to both connect elite men together, but it also has this coexistence of refinement and simplicity. So the idea is that elites could kind of choose whether they want to be in a classy restaurant or perhaps with their wives at some refined meal, but they could also kind of get down and dirty and eat beef sitting on a box. And so that became a choice for them at the exact same time that they're arguing that poor Americans should not be consuming beef or aren't worthy to have a porterhouse. Very strange kind of event. Yeah, uh, I I was surprised to learn about that. But when I thought about it, that kind of melding of kind of, you know, high class stuff with da- with like down and dirtiness, um, it reminded me of a lot of the uh, fancier barbecue places that I've been to. Like I, I yeah, I'm from the, that's a really interesting comparison. Yeah, I'm from the West Coast, so I've never been to a beefsteak, but I've been to a lot of like, you know, barbecue type places where it tries to put on airs of being really rural and rustic, and yet you know the barbecue guy he was on Top Chef or whatever, and everything costs you know twenty dollars a plate or more, and there's this sort of melding of you know, rustic authenticity with, you know, performance of status. Uh, what surprised you about this project when you were diving into it? What were you, um, what were you most kind of like astonished to find? So first, just on your point, I think that's a fascinating parallel. And I, th- I think that idea that kind of wealthy fetishization of simplicity or authenticity is a dynamic that they they kind of piece together that becomes important in the late 19th century and that you see today in exactly the ways you're describing. So I think you were at the 21st century version of the beefsteak. Um, but but on, your, on your question about what surprised me, um, I think what surprised me was, I'll give you one thing kind of related directly to the content about the story of meat in America, and another one just generally about doing and writing history. I'll start with the second one, which is doing and writing history. When I decided I would really write about people, and I kind of dug into people's lives, I realized kind of how strange everyone is. I kept reading these people, and I'd learn about William Somerville, who worked for the Matador Ranch, who was a kind of unreliable hypochondriac, and a lot of his letters and letters back to him are talking about this. Or I learn about a cowboy named Way Hamlin Updegraff, and I see in his letters to his mother, he's moved from New York to New Mexico, how funny he is. And I keep asking myself, are these people representative? Are they typical? Because that's what I want to understand. And eventually I realized that anyone you look at closely and treat like a fully realized person has these quirks, has these unusual features. There's no blandness to actually taking historical people or any any person, you know, as, as a person, treating them as a fully realized person. There's no blandness. So I thought that really surprised me as I kind of dug into some of these stories. Now, what surprised me about beef... Well, I don't know if I kind of drank my own Kool-Aid, as it were, mm-hmm. but it really did surprise me how important beef was to people's idea of what it meant to be American. And I, I just thought that was like a stereotype, maybe because, you know, we like to eat hamburgers. But as I kind of dug into the centrality of, of cattle ranching to the American West and ideas ideas about the frontier, that's where I started to realize that actually this beef thing is not just a minor cultural thing. It's really at the heart of what it means to be an American. And I think that sort of surprised me at first. 
Is there anything that we uh, haven't touched on that you uh, would like to speak to? Well, I think I think briefly some of the the maybe contemporary resonances. I try to argue that this kind of sets the mold. That in the 19th century, this dynamic, this acceleration of the production of beef, the centralization in Chicago, the importance of low prices above everything else, this kind of sets the mold for the 20th century. I think if you think about it today, our entire food system is predicated around the lowest prices possible. And that means that you have to cut corners at every stage of production from the ranch to the slaughterhouse to the grocery store. And what it also means is that low prices can be used to justify all the problems of the system. So in the 19th century, people said, if you try to reform this, it's going to hurt the the common laborer, as they said, who can afford our beef. And today you get meatpacking companies arguing that reforms to our food system will increase prices. And so I think that's true. And, And that is an argument that starts because the whole system becomes organized around this. So if we want to think about how to address some of this these strangeness and problems of our food production system, we have to recognize that that prices for meat will go up. And that means that people need to maybe eat less meat, but we also need to pair it with a system of economic justice that means that all Americans can continue to have the beef that's so important to who they are. All right. Where can people find a book? Uh, I suggest that they should go to either their local independent bookstore or check it out online. Just search Red Meat Republic. Excellent. Josh Specht, thank you very much for talking with us today. Thanks so much. Again, I can't recommend the book enough. It's great. Go find it. And go find us on Apple Podcast. Uh, give the show ratings, reviews, stars. That helps other people discover the show. So search for Weird History Podcast and do the thing. This is also a listener-supported show. There are no ads here. So go over to weirdhistorypodcast.com, become a monthly supporter, Uh, That is what we rely on instead of reading ads. So thank you to all of you who do that every single month. Uh, Again, send me questions for episode 200, Facebook, facebook.com slash Weird History Podcast. I'm at Joe Streckert on Twitter. Thank you all very much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. Cowpokes will come from the near and far when you throw a few ribeyes on the farm. Roberta Duran ain't too before a fight, cause it gives a mighty man an awful lot of